Well, good morning, Summit family. Good to have you here today. I'm Brian Agavino, the lead pastor, and uh, it's great to be here and see some friends and some old friends who are back with us today. As DJ mentioned, uh, we started about a year ago in the book of Mark, and we've been in Mark till the summer, and we took a short break, and today we're coming back. So we're starting back in the book of, or chapter 10, and I'm going to tell you a lot more about what's going on today in just a second. But let me read our passage for us. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom. He taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Before I pray for us, I've always had, and rightly so, I think, a hesitation to preach on the topic of divorce and remarriage. I found that around this topic, there are two very important things to recognize. The first is this. Each situation is incredibly unique and warrants individual conversation, reflection, and counseling. The second thing is that addressing this issue from the stage like this, even if careful, can often cause a lot of shame and guilt, especially when it's a monologue and not a dialogue. So, this can be very difficult to address this topic, and coming back into Mark, it's like, boom, here we go. <laughs> My heart this morning is to minister to our hearts, or more importantly, to allow the Spirit to do that. Please know that I sincerely mean that I've spent more time working on this sermon than I have in a sermon in quite some time because of that desire to be sensitive and caring and shepherd us well. So know that my door is always open and I would love to continue any conversation or process anything in light of this matter. This topic, marriage, divorce, singleness, remarriage, can often and does have a myriad of opinions. And the danger on teaching on this when we're not in discussion or dialogue when you're hearing a preacher from the stage, is that oftentimes we will hear what we want to hear or choose not to hear what we need to hear. 
which to be fair is how we engage in every sermon, isn't it? We hear what we want to hear and choose not to hear what we need to hear. So with that said, I want to invite you actually into this moment. All of us, single, married, divorced, remarried, or widowed. Because actually, after being nervous about this passage for weeks, I came out moved by it. As always, Jesus is going to surprise us in how he addresses this. He's going to take a trap or a trick question about a very complicated and complex topic and flip it upside down and turn it into something beautiful, something unexpected. I hope this morning the Spirit will move in such a way for us to unexpectedly find Jesus. So let me pray for us if I can. Awesome God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. When you attend a wedding, do you pay attention to the vows? Wedding vows have been around for actually a long time. There is a recorded vow from ancient Rome, so think early hundreds around that time. It was recorded this way. The groom said, I take you as a wife to honor, cherish, and provide for. I promise to be faithful and to protect you in all circumstances. Then the groom's vow was, I take you, my husband, to care for, to obey, and support. I vow to be loyal and to stand by your side through all challenges. Then, of course, we, many of us are probably familiar with a more traditional wedding vow. Some of you may have even spoken these. I, Brian, take you, Dondra, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Now, many couples actually like to write their own vows, modern vows. The Googles gave me a great example of one. <laughs> From the moment we met, I knew my life was forever changed. I promised to laugh with you in times of joy and to hold you close in times of sorrow. I vow to support your dreams as you've always supported mine. I promise to listen to you with an open heart and to learn and grow alongside you. I promise to create a home filled with love, compassion, and understanding. What do you feel when I read that? Like, isn't there something beautiful about hearing a confession and a promise like that? It's powerful. Have you ever been at a wedding and gone, that'll never happen? <laughs> yeah, no chance that they're going to make it. Well, who even commits to stuff like that? For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse? Only on their wedding day, maybe. 
I vow to support your... Anyway. Whoever says that's never going to happen. But at the same time, who can meet that standard? I mean, who can really hold to for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse? I didn't see any hands in here. (laughs) The words we say in that moment sure seem powerful, but is it possible to really promise that? Is it possible to make a covenant to someone like that? Today we come to a very interesting passage in the Gospel of Mark. Mark spent the first nine chapters disrupting us and resetting us. Those were the two big words that we used to unpack the first nine chapters. That basically what he was trying to do, Mark, the gospel writer, was he was trying to help us understand who Jesus is. And in chapter 8 and chapter 9, Peter, one of the disciples, confesses out loud for the first time, you are the Messiah, you are the one that was sent by God. And almost every commentator agrees that chapter 10 of Mark is actually a hard stopping point. There's a, there's a big turn that happens here in the book of Mark. And for two reasons, actually, it's a turning point. The first is he changes location. The first two verses there, and he left there and went to the region. There's something about Jesus on the move. He's heading somewhere. And Mark 10 sets us really up for chapter 11, which is the beginning, it's Palm Sunday, chapter 11. So in October, we're going to basically spending from October till the end of March in the last week of Jesus' life. So in chapter 10, there's something incredibly significant happening. And I started to wonder, why would Mark use divorce as the turning point for his book? It seems strange to me. Mark is trying to show us something that we might miss if we weren't following the flow of what he was writing. On the surface, it may seem that Jesus is engaging on the topic of marriage and divorce, and he is. But at the same time, Mark is using this turning point in his book to say something even more significant than just a conversation about marriage, remarriage, and divorce. It might just be that this whole chapter is setting the stage for what it actually means to follow Jesus. And here, Mark is saying marriage is the beginning of what that might mean, what Jesus is calling his followers to, all of them to. So what is he calling us to? Well, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the trap, the covenant, and the recreation. The trap the covenant, and the recreation. Let's start with the trap. So we're in a turning point in Mark. The location changes, and Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And this is one of those moments where it's important not to overlook what is going on and where Jesus is. Sometimes, if you're like me, when you get to those verses that are about places or there's a bazillion names, it's scanning time, right? Okay, he's in Judea, it's good. All right, where's Jesus speaking? Well, in this moment, we can't overlook what's happening. He said, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And so Mark gives us two pieces of information here to set the stage. First is the location, the region. 
Judea beyond the Jordan. Do you know who used to be in that area? John, the Baptist, used to be in that area. John the Baptist, who we studied just a few chapters ago, who, if you'll remember, he got because he was saying what? I'm trying to bring some levity this morning to this topic a little bit. It'll come and go. Why did John get beheaded? Because he was talking about Herod's divorce and remarriage. So first, here's what he's, Mark's setting this up for us. Then the second piece of information that we need is that the Pharisees had come to test him, or the literal word there is trap him in what was going on. And what we've been following in the Gospel of Mark is that the Pharisees are starting to and have come to a point where they really don't like Jesus. So they ask a question about divorce to trap him. So how can divorce be a trap? How is this question a trap? Well, you put those two things together, and here's what's going on. The the Pharisees are thinking, this can only go good for us. Because either Jesus is going to say, yeah, I think of divorce like the Pharisees. You can basically divorce anybody you want for almost any reason that exists. It's fine. That's what's taught. Or Jesus is going to say, better yet, no, you can never get divorced And then Herod's going to hear about it, and hopefully he'll take care of the Jesus situation, and we won't have to worry about it anymore. So this is the trap that they're setting up for Jesus. Well, they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus does what Jesus always does, and he asks a question. Now, I want you to listen really carefully to what Jesus asks and how they respond. Listen very specifically to the words that are used. Let me read it for us one more time. He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, I think the verbs here that Mark is using are very intentional. Jesus said, what did Moses command? And they respond with what Moses allowed. They were thinking of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verses one through four. It's very explicit there. Moses there talks about what is okay for you to have a certificate of divorce. It's where Moses talked about divorce. But I think Jesus has something else in mind here. Jesus takes their trap and he actually flips it on them. Here's what is happening. The, The Pharisees, they were trying to, in essence, Define marriage backwards. I want you to sit with me here and what's going on. Like, what are, the, what are the Pharisees trying to do? What are they saying to Jesus? They're like, hey, Jesus, okay, if someone's married, when is it okay for them to get divorced? And what Jesus, he, he, when he is engaging with them, he's like, you guys are thinking about this totally backwards. It's as if you're saying, Jesus, I want to fly a plane. So how do I crash? 
I want to drive a car, Jesus. So how do airbags work? It's not that crashing isn't important and airbags don't matter, but in essence what they're doing is they're missing the very essence of what marriage is and asking a wrong question. The exceptional measures necessary when a marriage fails are of no help in discovering the meaning and intention of marriage. What Jesus endeavors to do here with their question is to recover God's will for marriage, not to argue with them about the possible exceptions to it. Hear that one more time. What Jesus is doing here with their question is recovering what God's will and design for marriage is, not to argue about the possible exceptions to it. What Jesus is doing, in essence, is he's saying, I get that marriage is hard, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part, sickness and in health. I understand that it could be hard, and that's why Moses gave that certificate. Yes, that is true. But what if, what if there was something that could change that? He's saying, in, Inside, instead of looking at marriage as to what you can get out of it, he, he's, he wants to go back to what it was. He, he wants to take us back to something about the very origin and essence of what marriage is. And maybe we need to get back to what it was designed to be. So let's look at Jesus' response to their response. His view of marriage. And it's interesting to note that he goes back to the original covenant that was created. Verses 5 through 9. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let not man separate. You see, Jesus' question here was sneaky. What did Moses command? He knew that the Pharisees were going to go back to Deuteronomy. Yes, that is what Moses said. But Jesus was also thinking about another explanation that Moses gave. It's important to have some background here. You see that Pharisees and Jesus both agreed, this is evidence of it actually, that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. It's widely accepted that, Jesus, that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and most of Deuteronomy. And so when Jesus asked, what was Moses talking about when it came to marriage? Jesus was actually giving the Pharisees an opportunity here to step outside of divorce and say, well, where it really all begins is in Genesis chapter 2, where Moses wrote about Adam and Eve coming together and covenanting with one another. And I think Jesus, who would, I hesitate to say that he would trick anybody, 
Seriously. What he's trying to do is give the Pharisees an opportunity to see marriage differently. Now, they failed miserably, but he's inviting them into something very different. He's trying to help them think about creation, and they missed it. So Jesus reminds us and them about what the essence of marriage is. Here's how Jesus wants us to think about marriage. Not about when it crashes, but first to make sure we agree on how it's designed. So the first thing he says, verse 7, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So that language there, you may have heard some of the word hold fast is the same as cleave, leave and cleave, we say. You may have heard that in a a wedding ceremony. Or uh, that also can very specifically mean covenant. And so what Jesus is saying here, the first aspect of marriage that he's unpacking and reminding the Pharisees and us about, is that in marriage there is something that happens that is unique from every other relationship. There is a holding fast, a cleaving, a covenant. And the reason why that language, that covenant, that holding fast, there's an essence of permanence to it. You're not saying anything about the present. It's a promise for what is to come. So the first thing Jesus is reminding us is that the essence of marriage is permanent. It controls your future. And then the second thing is verse 8. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. He's saying there's a oneness that occurs, a one flesh. Now, when I was growing up and learning about marriage, maybe it was because of misinformation, maybe it was because of hormones, I thought this just meant sex. Is it okay to say that in church? It's okay, right? We're fine. And I wonder when you hear one flesh what you hear. My friends, sex is part of it and a beautiful part of it. But what Jesus is saying here is that the essence of marriage, what's happened when a man and a woman come together is that there's a oneness that goes so much deeper than physical oneness. It's a oneness that has physical and emotional and personal nakedness to it. It's a connection and vulnerability with someone at the highest level. It's sharing everything about yourself and being delighted in. That's what Jesus is inviting us to understand and be reminded about when we think about marriage. Tim Keller, pastor from New York, has one of my favorite quotes about oneness. He says this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be loved but not known, so someone loves me but doesn't really know me, that's someone who just says, oh, I love you, is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear which I think we all can relate to. To be known, for someone to really see who you are and then say, I don't love you, is our greatest fear. But to be fully known, 
and truly loved is what being loved by God is. It is what we need more than anything, and it liberates us from the pretense, it humbles us from our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And that relationship with God where we are fully loved and fully known is what it means to experience oneness in marriage. So Jesus here, when he's talking about divorce and marriage, he wants to bring us back to what God's design for it is. That covenant keeping. And that begins and flows from our relationship with God. It's interesting we have to, what's happening for Jesus and the way he's pushing us to understand marriage is he wants us to think about it really as this future pursuit of something that is permanent and a pursuit of oneness. So think of it this way. On May 17th, 1997, Donna and I were standing in Tarp Chapel in Tulsa and we made promises to one another. And here we are 26 years later, and I'm no more married than I was in that moment. That the covenant promise I made in that day is no different than the covenant promise that I would and am making today. But when we shared our vows, my behavior towards that covenant was not even close to what the promise was. That's why we call it a vow. For richer, for poorer, Hadn't been there yet. Didn't know how to do that, right? For better, for worse. Did, had no idea what that looked like. And, and so, but what I was saying was, when this comes, this is what I will pursue. I'm on the pursuit of my behavior, being conformed to the covenant that I've made before you and with you. And I'm going to let my behavior be conformed to that instead of, here's the key part, what I want it to be. So when we got married, I'm all in for better. Ah, on the worst part. I just don't know. You know, I mean, it depends what we're talking about for worse, right? Like, are you saying, like, you're yelling at me worse? Or what, what are we talking about here, right? You guys are with me on this, right? Like, this is where we are. And so what do I have to do in that moment? I have to make a decision. Am I going to indulge in myself? I'm out. You figure out the worst part. I'll be back when you're ready to be nice with, to me. <laughs> or am I going to say, oh, I, this is what covenant means. This is what oneness means. This is what permanence means. This is what leaving and cleaving means. In marriage, Jesus is saying there is a permanent promise that is made to spend a life living and pursuing covenant. So that means a permanent lifetime turning away from self-indulgence. Me looking to meet the needs to love unconditionally Dondra. Just as a sidebar reflection question, how much for all of us of our lives is driven by the pursuit of our own self-indulgence? 
So back to the wedding, back to the vows. Rich or poor, sickness and in health. We have to ask. At some point, I, I hope I am pushing a lot of us here to the edge of, is that even possible? Jesus points everyone back to God's original design, a permanent covenantal relationship where we are fully loved and fully known and pursuing that until death do us part. Is Jesus being idealistic here? It seems like he is saying, this is how marriage is supposed to be. And he could be potentially making a case for their never being divorce. Now hang with me here. It gets even more complicated. In verses 10, 11, and 12, the disciples come back to the house. I, I think they're saying, so Jesus, are you saying no divorce ever? In the house, the disciples asked him about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Which is what? It seems like Jesus here again is saying there is no divorce. Now, before I unpack what I think Jesus is really saying here, we have to remember a couple of things. The first is this. What was going, there are two places where that understanding of what Jesus is saying doesn't align. In fact, some people use this verse as a, one of the contradictions that there are in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 19, which is a parallel passage to this, Jesus actually literally says, there are no grounds for divorce except for adultery. But here, Jesus actually says the exact opposite of that, right? If someone divorces his wife and marries another, they commit adultery. Now, there's a remarriage thing, and people wrestle through that, but it's, it's apparent here that what Jesus is saying is, there, if you remarry, you have committed adultery. Now, what makes it even more complicated is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is very explicit, and there are several different places where there is, it is okay, it is right for someone to get divorced. And the church, although, if we'll go through history here, although hesitant to allow divorce, has at least held the stance that if there is adultery, many churches hold that if there is abuse, divorce is warranted. But here, Jesus says if there's divorce and remarriage, you're committing adultery. So what do we do with that? Well, I want to help us see something important here. I believe what Jesus is doing is he's tying when he's talking back, talking about divorce, he's tying it back to the question that the Pharisees were asking. Okay, so the Pharisees were saying, when is it okay to get divorced? And Jesus, in essence, was saying to them, your understanding of divorce, all of the... you, you the Pharisees had made this situation where it didn't matter, you know, people could get divorced because their wife had cooked their hummus wrong. I mean, that, not trying to be funny, like legit, you could get divorced for whatever you wanted. And what Jesus was doing here is he's referring back to their understanding of divorce. And what he's saying, I believe what he's saying, and use some commentaries to help me get here, what he's saying is, 
Whoever divorces their spouse, viewing marriage and divorce like the Pharisees, is invalidly getting divorced and therefore committing adultery if they remarry because they're really being married twice. That their first marriage was never, they, it, it wasn't justified that the way God sees marriage and divorce, the way the Pharisees were seeing is not aligned with that. That's what Jesus did. He's like, I'm going to realign you to how God understands marriage. And then we can, yes, talk about divorce, but if you understand marriage and divorce like the Pharisees do, well, if you get divorced then, you're still, you're committing adultery because you're not really justified in getting divorced. So, if you want to talk more about that, I'm going to, I'm going to stop it there just for this moment because I could talk a lot about it. But I do believe what Jesus is saying here is he's saying there, he's still allowing for there to be situations where divorce is warranted. And we as a church, just to humbly say it, hold to that too. That there are that adultery, that abuse, and certain other situations are a case for a justifiable divorce. But we should now still come back to what is Jesus trying to say here? What is Mark doing in this passage? Why is he going back to, to this story to help us in this transition? And I think the key to this passage the key to what Jesus is about to do, the key to Mark's twist here, the key to following Jesus, the key to healthy marriages, the key to understanding what God wants for us, all comes back to one tiny word that Jesus dropped in the middle of this passage. And Jesus said, because of your hardness of Heart. Jesus is saying, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking to the wrong things because all of you, all of us have a heart problem. And today, the hope for anyone who is hearing is Jesus has a cure for hard-heartedness. Jesus is either being hopelessly idealistic or he believes that the coming of the kingdom because of the cross and the resurrection, which is where he's headed. Don't miss what Mark's doing here. He's like, I'm about to set you guys up for the cross and the resurrection. He's saying, because of what's coming, Mark is telling us through Jesus and his words that I have a promise for you that your hard hearts can now become tender. Here's what's happening in this passage. Jesus is saying marriage is an example of how people have failed to display how God longs for humans to flourish. But a new way is here. A new heart is about to be awakened in those who will believe. Mark is opening the second section of this gospel with Jesus declaring that his plan is to recreate the world back to its original story. 
Jesus did not come to enter into our story. He points back to Genesis to say, I want you to come into my story. And what is promised in his story? He wants to recreate our hard hearts. He's going to change our hearts. He's going to make the hope of being fully known and fully loved a reality. Our stories point to impossibilities. Can can you join me in saying that like things never seem to go the way we want them to? Pain, struggle, heartache. I, I mean, if we go all the way back in the story, that is the story of the Bible. God saved the people out of Egypt, and he gave them Ten Commandments. And what did they do? They rebelled. So what did God do? He gave them some more commands. And what did they do? They rebelled. And he gave them some more commands. And they rebelled. And over and over, we see this pattern. Israel breaking the commandments. They're worshiping the calf. They get more commandments. And it seems like there's no hope for them. So Moses gave more laws, more rebellion, more laws, more rebellion. It's actually the very pattern of the New Testament. And what's the point? Well, there's a very interesting point at the end of Deuteronomy where Moses says, we need transformed hearts. And the prophets come along, and what do the prophets say? Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26, I've got it up here on the screen, and I will give you what? A new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then what? Same thing over and over. Israel's disobeying. God gives more laws. He says, come back. They're like, okay, we will. They disobey over and over. So Jeremiah comes on the scene. And what does Jeremiah say? For this is the covenant that the Lord will make for you with the house of Israel. In those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their what? Hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Our story points to a story of impossibility. We have pain and struggle and heartache, but Jesus' plan is to take broken creation and broken marriages and broken hearts and recreate our hearts. So back to marriage and sickness and in health for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. What Jesus is doing here, Mark is doing, he's setting us all up for this, is he's saying, I'm going to give you a new heart so that you can live out the essence of marriage. I think that's what Mark's telling us here. He's saying, you bring all the pain and heartache of what you have in life to the one who wants to recreate your heart. Jesus says that the way the world thinks about things is backwards. The world says, and we do too, I need you to satisfy me. And if you don't, I'm out. I need you to be everything for me. And if you're not, I'm out. I need you to fill my heart and fulfill my desires. And if you don't, I'm out. And what Jesus is saying is the only way to experience covenantal, permanent marriage, 
the only way to be satisfied is really if you think about it completely upside down and you are filled from somewhere else, that we gain a new heart from somewhere else. And that's what Jesus is offering to us. He's saying, I'm going to give you a new heart that will empower you to experience being fully loved and fully known so that you can then not demand that of the person that you're in relationship with. My friends, the good news for us today is that Jesus is recreating. And the way he is recreating is he is going to supply all of our needs. Here's the hope for us. He will give us the approval we need. He will give us the acceptance we need. He will give us the family we need. He will give us the riches we will need. He will give us the friendship we need. He will give us the value we need. He will give it all to us. That's the heart he wants to recreate in you and me. My friends, today, let us repent and turn from our self-indulgence and believe in and trust in the one who can recreate, the one who makes a covenant with you and with me. That the beauty of the heart that Jesus will give to us is this. Jesus is saying to you and me in this new heart, he's saying, I vow to be with you in sickness and in health. I vow to be with you for better for worse. I vow to be with you for richer, for poorer. And Jesus truly is the only one in all the world who never has to say, till death do us part. Because friends, he defeated death and death will not separate us from him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we're all in need of a recreated heart. And so in this moment, we humbly come before you and, and ask you to do that. And we thank you that the beauty of this is that we don't need to bring anything to that. We just need to bring our need. And so we come in need to you. Father, I, I just want to pray in this moment your protection over our church. Uh, there are all kinds of people in this room right now. So join with me. Let's just pray together. Father, I pray for our healthy marriages this morning. I pray your blessing upon them. I pray that they would grow deeper in their love for you and that as you're recreating their new hearts, that they would display your love to others. Father, I pray for the struggling marriages that are in our room this morning. Father, and I pray your grace upon each individual. I pray that you would help them each to look towards you 
and to experience the recreation of their hearts and being fully known and fully loved by you, at least in this moment right now. Father, for those in our room this morning who are divorced, who are thinking about divorce, Father, remind them that your grace is enough for this moment right now. Father, protect this Sunday from being a Sunday of shame and guilt, and may your spirit be the one who's leading and guiding. Father, I pray for our singles this morning. I'm thankful for them. I repent for the church to them that has made marriage the end-all, be-all of everything. Help us to be a place where we would care and love and value those who are just pursuing you and finding themselves fully known and fully loved in you and that being what they need. Might we learn from them, for those of us who are married and struggle with wanting our spouses to be something they were never meant to be. Father, we thank you for our widowed here in this room. And we thank you that you have drawn them here to encourage us. And we pray for them in their heartache and their loss. Pray that you would encourage them this morning. And for our remarried father, we pray that you would use their covenant and their connection to one another this morning to, to, to help them step into this phase of being fully known and fully loved, to remember that you now they are now in this new covenant. And may they honor you with the path that they head down. Father, what we all desperately need, no matter who we are this morning, is new hearts. So we come before you in need of that and ask you to do a mighty, mighty work through the power of your spirit in us today. And we pray that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.